You are different. You are a miracle. Coming out of that previous song, I want you to think about those two things. That you are in some stage of a miracle right now today. Because God is changing you into, if you are willing, if you say yes to him, you are being made different. And that's a miracle. You, right now, where you sit today. We're going to talk about, we're going to dive into Matthew, and we're going to uncover some of the preciousness of God's word today, this morning, as we hear what it is that he desires for us, what, it, what his longings for our life actually are. And as we do that, I, I want to just take a second to encourage you, even if you haven't picked one up yet, even if you're... You picked one up and you read three pages and you stopped. This book, the word of God, the holy scriptures are transformational to your life. They are the thing that will work on you in accompaniment with the Holy Spirit to move and to change you to something new, to renew you. Now, I talked to a guy this morning, his name's Tom. I've never met him before, awesome guy. I met him right back there. And, uh, and he had this under his arm. I was like, hey, and I do this. I freak people out. Some of you have experienced it. Some of you haven't yet, but you will. I just walk up, hi, how are you? You know, my name's Ryan. And, uh, and for some, it's like, whoa. <laughs> just showed up here and I haven't had my coffee yet. <laughs> It was a great conversation because he proceeded to tell me that he had, he's, they've been here about four months. He grabbed one of these. He's loving it. It's just a fresh perspective on the word without the chapters, without the verses, just the narrative of scripture together and coming to impact. They just moved from Grand Rapids. They're up in uh, Murray Lake and they're, they're loving the community that they're a part of. They've jumped into a life group. It's awesome. It's awesome. And, and so that just was encouraging to me. And I want to use that to encourage you. If you haven't to do, to get this, we're about halfway through. It doesn't matter. Join us for the second half of the different series. It's been amazing. Um, as we talk about that this morning, we're actually going to be, we're actually going to take a snapshot of the second act of Matthew. We're in the book of Matthew as we read this together. And we're going to be in chapter 9. It's where we're going to dwell. But, but I want to go back just a little bit as we get started. I want to take a glance at the uh, uh, chapter 7 up to 9. And I want to come off of the high of the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you have no idea what the Sermon on the Mount is. Some of you have probably studied it and written papers on it. I'm just going to put it this way. This hot young rookie rabbi he's put out the pamphlets the word of mouth has gone out that he is about to start his ministry and so people have come out by the droves now these people are probably uh, a little bit upper echelon society they're more of the academic elite they're more of the religious uh, leaders and the teachers of the law and the pharisees that's that's probably the primary constitution of the crowd initially and what he does is he takes the law the torah the Pentateuch, the five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that these kids from the age of pre-consciousness have been inundated with this law. And Jesus takes it and he turns it on end, upside down, inside out. And he says 
to, to, to them as he's, as he's speaking to them. He, see, literally, he literally gets to this point where he's so deeply embedded in the inner psyche. And he's like, the, you know, that external stuff that you all have turned this into, all the, the acts and the legalism and all the, the behavioral components of it that really don't have anything to do with the state of the heart. I'm going into the heart. If you've said raka to your brother, fool is the translation. You've murdered him out of anger. Goes down a whole list. Don't pray where people can see you because that is, that is purposeful. I know the intent of your heart. You just want people to see you. Pray in quiet in the closet where God hears and God sees and do it unceasingly. He says at one point, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Every jot and tittle, every iota of the law I will fulfill. And he comes off this academic high. I mean, these, these people were impressed with Jesus. The, 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 the babble would have been, I can't believe what insight, what wisdom. This rabbi is going to do great things comes off the, the high and very intentionally, beginning in chapter seven, he moves into the valley floor low because he wants to show his disciples, the ones that are serious about following him and us 2,000 years later, what it really means to follow him. And here's something I want you to hear, church, today. In the Jewish and Hebraic culture, if you said something, if you communicated something, if you stated that you believed something, it did, not, it did not resonate as true unless you actually acted that way. Unless you then became what you said you believed, then it was believable. If you didn't, if you talked a good talk, but you never actually let that translate into traction right, where the rubber meets the road, then everybody else around you knew that was not real. That was fake. You don't really believe that. That rings as true today as it did then. If we don't act the way we say, then people around us are like, no way. No way. The world around us who's desperately needing to see Jesus can't see him because we're not acting like him. So he comes down. The very first person that he meets is a leper. A hideously disfigured man with a communicable skin disease that was known, labeled as untouchable, quarantinable. Right? I'm telling you this, this happens every time you preach a good sermon. You step off the platform and the person that meets you pukes on you. No different with Jesus. And not only is it no different, but he's like, that's okay, because that's the one that I want to get. Amen. He comes, he's not even down to the, it says he's coming down off the mountain, and this leper meets him. Now, just incidentally, he wouldn't have been allowed up the mountain. He couldn't hear the Sermon on the Mount. All he can hear is how Jesus acts towards him in this moment. And all the people that have stuck with Jesus, right, that are walking down the mountain with him, they get to see the first demonstration of the real inside-out, upside-down gospel Amen. that Jesus just preached. Because here's what he does. He reaches down and he touches a man that nobody else in their right mind would have touched. Nobody. 
There would have been a collective gasp. There may have been a disciple or two that leaped towards him to pull him. Like, you don't, you can't, don't do that. The, the, the leper says to him, Lord, Lord, I know, if you're willing, I know you can heal me. In Jesus' words, these words, I want you to pay attention to as we move into the rest of the text today. He says, I am willing. And he touches him, skin to skin. I will go to where you are. I will be affected and influenced by what you are affected and influenced by. I will connect with you at a level that nobody else was willing to connect. And I will love you. And I will heal you. Get this. That's a a brief story, just a snippet. From seven all the way to nine, we get 13 second chance stories from seven to chapter nine in Matthew. Rapid fire, one after the other, he does this. He's the interventionist. He comes into scenarios where people are terrified and he casts out fear. He comes into scenarios where people are plagued by dementors, where they can't overcome a mental imbalance, where they can't overcome the attack of the enemy, continually whispering lies into their life. And he drives them out and he rescues those people. He comes into a situation that seems so sort of banal. It's just, he goes to Peter's house. Peter's a buddy. Peter's one of his disciples. Goes to Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. Not even Peter's mother. It was expected in that day and age, and just even in this story, we see again Jesus' high regard for women. It would have been expected that she gets up, even in her sixth day, and she feeds and serves and cares for the disciples. No. Jesus goes in and instead he serves her by healing her of her fever. There are 13, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 of these stories. Some of you are like, Ryan can count. The rest of you are like, that actually is pretty awesome. And then he comes into chapter 9. And he lands, I, I want to land in this this. Uh, this just poignant moment with his disciples where so much is expressed, so much is packed into this passage. Uh, and I want to do that together uh, with you. So, so if you will, go to uh, Matthew chapter 9, starting verse 35. It's going to be up on the screen for you as well. And we're going to unpack this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Stop right there. We're gonna unpack some of those phrases and words and then we'll, go, we'll, we'll finish up later in that text. The first one is this, saw the crowds. Sorry, that's not the first one. All the towns and villages. This is the inclusive life of Jesus. Now here, I I have heard people say this last week, they don't like Christianity because it's exclusive, not inclusive. This isn't something we get to skip by or skip through. What does all mean? Now, I would contend that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most inclusive, the most all-welcoming gospel ever presented, faith ever known to mankind. 
But I would also say it is coercive. There is a point and a place where you must come into contention with your decision to either give your life to Jesus and obey him or not give your life to Jesus and disobey him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That is coercive. You have to reckon with that at some particular point. But it is for all. It is for all. He went into all the towns and villages. He didn't skip a village because their median income wasn't high enough. He didn't skip a village because they're the village of idiots. None of them went to college. He didn't skip a village because they're so wealthy and so prissy and they've got gates at the front. Mm -mm. All everywhere skin color political orientation all these different things i'm going to them and i'm going to preach and i'm going to teach and i'm going to proclaim and i'm going to heal anyone and everyone that will listen and then he moves on he says now we're to two saw the crowds this is the attentive heart of jesus this is the attention of Jesus to, to people, to the specific people. In fact, one of the stories is spectacular of the 13 earlier ones. There's this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She comes up to him. It's in a big crowd. There's people literally would have been pressing around him and she touches him and he, turn, he like stops in the middle of the crowd, in the middle of where they're going and he turns and he just, they're a bubble. He focuses on her. He gives her attention. Your Lord and your Savior, Jesus Christ, will look all the way to the inner, the deepest inner being yeah. of your soul. And this is applicable for us because I think, and it actually moves into the next one, he saw the crowds and had compassion on him, which I've labeled the interrupted life of Jesus. See, the attentive life of Jesus uh, requires that he's willing to be interrupted. We don't like to be attentive and we don't like to be interrupted. Because we have objectives, we have goals, we have our agenda, we have the thing we want to get done, we have our plan. See my beautiful plan? God has a macro magnanimous view. He sees the big picture. You can't help it, but you're in the weeds. You have an infinite or a finite perspective to his infinite perspective. And when he says, I need you to stop and take time and be interrupted by this need, by this person who is desperate for me and you are my channel and you are my medium to get to that person, then you gotta be willing to be interrupted to be used by God. Jesus saw the crowds. He gave attention. He, he paid attention. That's a big deal. You know it when you are with someone who's a non-anxious presence, who is with you in the moment and isn't distracted by, well, I gotta say hi, but five minutes from now, I need to be accomplishing this. There's a different persona, a different aura that that person exudes. May we be one who has compassion this word, this word actually meant literally an ache in the gut, a pain that, that, that Jesus would allow someone else's sorrow, someone else's pain, someone else's situation, their burden, the things they're carrying to affect his emotional state. A lot of times we're okay with knowing about other people's burdens but we don't want them to affect our emotional estate. 
Does that make sense? That we, we look and we see and we, we're, we're sad, kind of, but not enough to actually be affected at an emotional level. Jesus was. And I, I want us as a church to be. I want this to be something where we're not allowed to walk away and say, well, you know, I, I'm just not a real compassionate person, but I have other things I'm good at. I'm, I'm just not very empathetical, you know. It, it, it's just not a gift. I don't know. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is how he lived. And I challenge you to live in a similar way. Moves on and it says this. After he saw the crowds and had compassion on them, it says, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Actually, circle, highlight, underline, harassed and helpless. The affected, the agitated life of Jesus I unpack these two words because really they're pivotal. What does Jesus mean when he's saying harassed and help? But in, in the Greek, harassed is so much more profound than, than maybe that idea that hits us in English. It meant that you were being peeled alive, that you were being skinned layer by layer to the bone by the agitation, by whatever it is or the plethora of things that it is that is just ripping your soul apart, that is plaguing your spirit and pulling you apart at the seams where you do not feel like there is any way you can turn where you are not gonna be harassed. The ENRSV WX translation says it this way, distressed. To be distressed in your very being. I, I thought of these things. The self-loathing that leads to self-depreciation. That leads to self-mutilation. That leads to self-annihilation. To be plagued, pestered, assailed, infested by a narrative of negativity. By dementors. that have whatever that particular thing is on repeat inside your spirit. If that is you today, if you are here and you hear nothing else, I want you to know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sees you where you are and longs, longs to intersect that. That he came, that he could die, literally give his life, give you his shalom, and take from you that harassment, that distress, that horror, that hideous reality, whatever it is that you're dealing with. The next word is helpless, means to be dispirited. Think of your spirit just falling out of your body and pooling around your feet like a puddle of blood. In the Greek, it means that someone picked you up, they looked at you, they examined you, they turned you around, and they just discarded you, like refuse or waste, like litter alongside the road. All of us at some point or another has felt helpless, worthless, meaningless. I don't know if it's because your spouse, supposed to be the closest person in the world to you, has repeated for the 6,000th time how little you mean to them. Some of our kids, have been bullied, beleaguered, pressed, picked on, called awful names, ostracized so many times 
They don't believe they're worth anything. Jesus Christ does. He came, died to re-inspirit us, to fill us again, to give us his spirit where ours has faded. It says sheep without a shepherd. This gets gross. So if you don't like gross, plug your ears. We, we miss this analogy and we miss it because Sunday school has done us a disservice. You know, you remember uh, Mrs. Uh, M- McFitty, forgive me if any of you in here are named Mrs. McFitty. It wasn't that one. She gave you the little cotton balls and the little eyes and the little, the little uh, you know, popsicle stick. She said, glue the cotton balls on the, on the stick and, you know, and, and bounce it over to Jesus and his staff. And Jesus is going to collect the sheep close because he's a great shepherd. And that's all you have in your mind for what this analogy means. I want you to take that. I want you to discard it, throw it in the trash can. Okay? Be rid of it because this analogy of sheep shepherd is powerful. It's used throughout the entirety of scripture. So many other metaphors and meanings for us than just this one. We're going to dwell in just one and here it is. That the intimate or involved life of Jesus meant this. When you have a sheep in many parts of the world that, that are plagued by insects, they will crawl inside the orifices of the sheep's head, ears, eyes, mouth, nose. And they'll get all the way up in the nasal passages, some of these insects, and they'll lay eggs in the nasal passage and the eggs will hatch and they will burrow further into the brain of the sheep. And the sheep in absolute distress will take its head and mash its head repeatedly against a tree or the ground or a rock, trying to dislodge the harassment from inside. And eventually it will mangle its own brain and it will die because it did not have a great shepherd a good shepherd. Here's what the shepherd does. Many of us unruly sheep fight the shepherd when he goes to do this. It's not the, oh, I'm gonna anoint your head with oil. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. He will put us in a hook. He will hold on to us and he will take his fingers covered in oil and he will ram them up the nasal passages of that sheep as far up as he can get to slather the inside with this oil because... It is the barrier, it is the protection that keeps those pestilences, those dementors from getting their hooks into the brain of your spirit and holding on until you run and bash. These are the protection. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is his gift to us, the anointing that he will give us to protect us when we are in right relationship with him, to move forward in that right relationship with his constant presence, holding us and protecting us from those plagues and those pestilences. Is that not an amazing metaphor that he's given? Not bouncy sheep. He goes on and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He said to his disciples this. What we need to get out of this is the urgency, okay? And this is where we begin to turn. And Jesus begins to say to his disciples, you don't understand how imperative it is 
that you, that you be transformed, that your life be changed, and that you become an under-shepherd, that you become an assistant to the great shepherd, that you move from the lost sheep into the flock, and then you begin to develop, and you begin to put on the fruits of the Spirit. You begin to understand who I am, and you begin to, to do what I do for people. You become a worker in the harvest field. Now, again, these agrarian uh, metaphors are beautiful and amazing, but sometimes I'm, I'm mortified by how many people have no, no concept of, of an agricultural community anymore, so it just kind of skates over top. This is what this means. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. There's a desperation that Jesus has. He's looking out over fields that have been, that have been cultivated and, and tilled and then, and then seeds that were sown and then fertilizer that was put, put on and then more cultivation and more cultivation and more weeding and more. You tell I grew up on a farm and you get all the way to the end and you've poured your very life into that harvest and there's a very short window to bring it in. It's everything. It's life. We've got to get out there. We've got to harvest it. My, my dad, when I was young, he would bale thousands of square bales. And I thank Jesus, even for his sake, that they came up with a big square baler and skid steers that can pick them up and take them in. But when I was a kid, that wasn't the case. So he, he, we, would, we would work very hard to, to bring in the alfalfa, the hay crop. And, um, and he was particular, so particular. He used to irritate me about, about the exact right moisture level of the, of the hay. And um, until I actually saw a, a, a stack of hay spontaneously combust, yeah. I didn't get it. When I saw it just start burning, I was like, oh, oh okay, we should pay more attention to that. Anyway, we get it fluffed in the field. I know that's a very masculine word, fluffed. We'd fluff it and we'd get it all just right and it would, it would uh, be, be the right dryness and then we would bale and we would bale. And we would sometimes in one cutting, we'd harvest like three to 4,000 square bales. And it was my dad and it was me and it was my brother. Inevitably, every single time, I think so God would give me this illustration so I could preach today. There was a cloud, a storm cloud on the horizon the minute that last bale hit the ground. And you have to go out and you have to get them in and you have to rescue them and get them under cover, get them under the protection of the barns or you lose them. So my job as a preacher was to go door to door in our neighborhood and knock on their door and say, hey, who wants to come out and help us harvest 4,000 bales? Great perks, 105 degree hay mow, hay fever. It's wonderful. No, no, I mean, I spun it. I'd be like, you listen, it's the best diet you've ever had. Like, you will lose a ton of sweat weight at least. And, um, and we're going to feed you this giant meal, which we don't end up feeding you because we can't stop because we got to keep bringing in the hay. But I wouldn't say those parts. And, and, and the neighborhood, it's crazy. In an agrarian community, the neighborhood comes out. Yeah. I'll help. I only got a few hours, but I'll help in the next house down. So we'd gather the neighbors and we'd put as many workers in the field as we possibly could and we would bring every single one of those bales in if we could. And there were years, heartbreaking years, where we couldn't. 
And the quality of the hay would, would go down sometimes so badly that we'd lose it. There is an urgency to what Jesus is saying. The workers are few. And, I, and we're gonna move into the next passage right before we do that. When he says the workers are few, this is the incomplete life of Jesus. And I know for some of us, that's like, ooh, wait, can you, can you say that? Is that okay to say that? Yeah, Jesus is demonstrating it to us. He, he's saying, he's saying, I need you. I'm here for 30 years, then I do my ministry for three and a half, then I go. I, I need you. There's, there's decades, centuries, millennia of the church that has to be me to the world. You, you, you gotta get this because I'm incomplete. The harvest is gonna go and it's gonna go and it's gonna go and I need you to participate in bringing it in. I'll help you. Pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. I'll send you more. But in and of myself, I'm not going to do this. I need you, the workers. And then here's the path. Go into uh, uh, chapter, again, we're nine, uh, verse 38, nine into 10. It says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And then Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Now, you can literally, if you want, if, you, if you've got your Bible, take your pen and draw like a circle with arrows just in reverse, going back from, from the end of nine to 10 and from 10 back up to nine. Because what's actually happening is here is where Jesus is turning the perspective. He's turning the ship and he's calling us into this and he's saying, you will complete me. You, the church, my bride will complete the mission. There's, part, there's a part of scripture where he says, you will actually go on to do greater things than I can do because you have the power of numbers, the infinite capacity to spread. I, I could only go to these towns and villages. These, this, was, this was within my geographic region. You guys can go and you can go and you can go. You will complete the mission that I start but I need you on board. And then he says, he gave them authority. This, this authority as a completion is also the authorization and the credibility of the Son of God to go. So he gathers these disciples around him he's, he, and he sends them out and they begin practicing what it is like to be Jesus. They actually put into practice, they actually put traction in place for the Sermon on the Mount. They begin doing the things that he said. He says, he says I'm giving you authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal, which is the essence of Jesus' ministry. See, he, he gets into the places where the imperfections and the impurities and the rotten stench of toxic sin is killing us. And he's saying, you actually now have the ability to do that for somebody else because my spirit, I give you my Holy Spirit. I give you the gifts of the spirit. Take these, these uh, and, and the fruits of the spirit we talked about last week. We can't do this without them. Take these into those places of someone else's life and heart that's just wrecked. Love them. Peace them. 
joy to them. With your words and with your mouth, be my mouthpiece. With your hands, bandage, hold, protect. He goes on, he says, in uh, 10.5, skip down a couple of verses. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. And I would, I'm adding this, yet. Okay? He's incomplete, remember? We're, we're, we're beginning this ministry, yet. The church does go there. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Listen to this. Freely you have received. Freely give. Freely you have received me. You have received the gift of the Spirit. You've received the fruits of the Spirit. You've got me. You've got, my, you've got each other. Now go and give that to those hurting, broken, oppressed, downcast, downtrodden. As we close today, this song, Reckless Love, we've been singing it for a couple of months now. Powerful anthem. I did some research, and some of you may know this, some of you have, may have no idea uh, what this song comes out of. It comes out of Luke, the, the book of Luke, a parable of Jesus uh, chasing after the, the one lost sheep, leaving the 99 who were okay, and going after the one lost sheep. That's what it comes out of. The author of the song, the writer of this song, wrote a piece that I thought was incredibly powerful in sort of giving the, the philosophy and the undergirding of why he wrote the song. I want to read that to you, and then uh, we're going to make it personal at the end of that, okay? Corey Asbury writes, when I use the phrase, the reckless love of God, I'm not saying that God himself is reckless. I am, however, saying that the way he loves is, in many regards, quite so. What I mean is this, he is utterly unconcerned with the consequences of his actions re with regards to his own safety, comfort, and well-being. His love isn't crafty or slick. It's not cunning or shrewd. In fact, all things considered, it's quite childlike. And might I even suggest sometimes downright ridiculous. His love bankrupted heaven for you. His love doesn't consider himself first. His love isn't selfish or self-serving. He doesn't wonder what he'll gain or lose by putting himself out there. He simply gives himself away in order for just one of us to look back at him and offer ourselves in return. There's no plan B with the love of God. He gives his heart so completely, so preposterously, that if refused, we would think it irreparably broken. Yet he gives himself away again and again and again and again, time and time again. Make no mistake, our sins do pain his heart. And 70 times 7 is a lot of times to get your heart broken. And yet he opens up and allows us back in every single time. 
His love saw you when you hated him and all logic said they'll reject me. He said, no, I don't care what it costs me. I'll lay my life on the line as long as I get their hearts. To make it personal. Every one of us has a story. And every one of the people on our block has a story. And every one of the people in our cohort has been hurt bad. And every one of the people in our carpool has been harassed. And every one of those we've served alongside has been helpless. And every one of the little ones in our classrooms are already haunted by something. And every one of the dear ones in our families have been harmed somehow. Will you intervene in their mess? Their heartbreak, their wandering, their misery, their pain, their sickness, their oppression, their battles. Will you staunch the wounds, weave coverings, sew patches, and bandage brokenness? Will you listen to the lament, hear the hollowness, and heed their need? Will you, like Jesus, step away from the places you are secured and revered and move toward the people who are destitute? Are you willing, like Jesus, to touch the sores of someone's soul and assuage the soul sick with salve for their spirit? What is your commitment, your compassion for the harassed and helpless? Will you work the field with Jesus for Jesus, for the sake of so many who need you. I want you to listen to these words of reckless love again. I want you to stand and I want you to sing these words. Go ahead and stand. From a different vantage point, I want you to put yourself in the position, not of the lost lamb or the simple sheep, but as an understudy, as an assistant to the great shepherd. If Jesus' love has no top and no bottom, no beginning and no end, no right and no left, if it is bottomless, endless, fathomless, and infinite, then we too have this limitless love, this reckless love to offer others. Will you? Who will you? When will you? How will you participate with the Son of God to change lives? Are you, like him, willing?